We've been privileged in this program in the past to have adjunct professor of law at Northwestern University, Stephen J. Harper, talk about some of his excellent work he's done. Well, first of all, he drew our attention with his pandemic timeline series, which explained in detail how Trump had made a mess of the entire COVID-19 situation. We also talked about his timeline on the Trump-Russia Ukraine situation, uh, which I believe are both on BillMoyers.com. And we've also talked about the whole insurrection situation. He's got a recent post on that very subject and a timeline of absolute great quality we need also to bring into the conversation today. It's now several months old, but still very, very relevant. So after saying all that, I want to say welcome back to Radio Parallax, Stephen J. Harper. Well, thank you, Doug. Always a pleasure to talk to you. You've written a piece recently about about how it is that, uh, you know, these supposed heroes of William Barr, et cetera, are really nothing, nothing like that. So let, let's start with that. You talked about the lawyers who enabled Trump's assault on democracy. Yeah, you know, they remind me of the, of the old joke about, you know, the guy that gets stuck on the roof of his house and he, he can't figure out how to get down. And he, and he, and he finally gets down and he, and he tells everybody, guess what, I got down off the roof of my house. To which people look at him and say, well, how did you get up there in the first place? <laughs> William Barr is, a, is probably the poster child for this problem, although there are a couple others who I included in my article who have sort of flown under the radar for most of Trump's uh, administration. But William Barr is the poster child. I mean, here's a guy, you know, shortly after after joining the Trump administration, one of his first major acts was to, uh, you know, completely kneecap the Mueller investigation. Right. Uh, issuing a deceptive summary before it came out. Um, he then went after the whole Trump-Russia investigation, appointing a, a, a special uh, prosecutor to do that. Remember John Durham? Anybody remember John Durham? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he, well, he lost the case that he, that, he, that he brought, and then he intervened in, in the Flynn case. He intervened in the Stone case. I mean, this is unprecedented stuff of politicizing for the personal benefit of a sitting president uh, the attorney general, you know, using the force of his office. And, I, and you can go on and on and on, but in terms of the election and the insurrection, Barr was one of the cheerleaders right. for the pre-election, right. you know, you can't trust you can't trust mail-in ballots. And, you know, and in Congress he was asked, you know, well, what's your evidence of that? And he says, well, common sense, I don't have any evidence. Great. To quote from your own piece, you note that when he does get around to resigning on December 14th, Trump immediately tweeted the results, but Barr uh, reassured Trump, oh, yeah, that the department's review of voter fraud allegations in the 2020 election, that'll continue to be pursued. It's the opening sentence of his resignation letter that goes on and on with effusive praise for Trump and his administration and his accomplishments and how proud Barr is to have been, to have been a part of it, blah, blah, blah. Um, and now you, re- you look at these videotape excerpts that they're playing in the January 6th committee, and he's saying, you know, I, I told Trump all this election, you know, fraudulent election stuff was nonsense and, and BS, and, and uh, you know, he was uh, detached from reality. Well, you know, that's something that might, that might have been important to know in January, right after the insurrection, right? How about before um, the insurrection? Or even better, even better. But nothing. I mean, silence uh, until he got a book deal. And it makes you cynical. I, I'm a lawyer, and I, I take particular offense at this kind of behavior because it's just it's it's just it's, well it's the reason people hate lawyers among others, um, <laughs> and uh, it's it's well deserved you know Pat Cipollone okay Pat oh, Cipollone yeah. White House Counsel right yeah. oh yeah boy he sure seems like a he sure seems like the sane guy in the loony bin right well except you know guess who was who was standing in front of the entire Senate during Trump's first impeachment literally lying 
about what had happened during the investigation of Ukraine about the about the you know how Congress had conducted the proceedings, how the House had conducted the conducted the proceedings, and and so on. You know, and he was he was in attendance at these these loony meetings that were happening in in January and in December December of 2020 and January of 2021. And you know now you know you look at him and he's incredulous. Oh my gosh, you know clearly this was nuts. Clearly this was crazy. I mean these are like people that have been yanked out of a cult. But but to some degree, I mean, not that I'm going to speak up in defense of Pat Cibolone, but I understand people like McCarthy were saying, you know, Trump should he's not listening to them; he's listening to the the, the, the clown car people. Yeah. And then he did seem to, at least to some degree, being to be a sane voice in the room when Sidney Powell and others were talking about lunatic schemes. Yes, that's true, and I give him I I give him credit for that, um, and I give him credit for finally you know be going public with this stuff. Uh, with what he knew, because I think it will, in, 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 it'll enable others, it'll, it'll empower others who are of lesser rank, uh, who will feel a greater freedom to, to step forward as well. But my gosh, you know, the guy needed to be publicly shamed by Liz Cheney, and he needed, you know, to be essentially embarrassed by a young staffer named Cassidy Hutchinson, who right. courageously did testify publicly before he finally uh, appeared. And then, and then I have to tell you, and this is a nuance that probably only lawyers would catch, but, you know, a number of the times when they played video clips of questions where he would stop in the middle and not want to answer, and he turned to his lawyer and right. say, well, I'm exoking, invoking privilege. There's no privilege that applies to what he was talking There's no executive privilege in a situation like this where, number one, Trump didn't even invoke it, um, or number two, executive privilege only applies when a president is consulting on the execution of his lawful duties. And last time I checked, leading a coup was not the execution <laughs> of a president's lawful duties. And three, there's a crime fraud exception that almost certainly trumps, certainly trumps attorney-client privilege. And I think if the Supreme Court, although with this Supreme Court, who knows, would, would certainly trump any claim of privilege. So it, 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 it's a complete nonsense. You know, he, so he still was, he was still sort of half a coward. I'm glad you pointed this out, because when I was watching that testimony, he would kind of pause and the, the, the counsel would kind of look at him. I, I sort of thought, well, I guess I guess there are some constraints on this, but you're pointing out, well, no, not really. No, there aren't. The constraints were he got a question that he didn't want to – if you watched it carefully, this is, here's the dynamic. He got a question that he did not want to answer. Right. So he looked to his lawyer, and that was his lawyer's cue to say privilege. And at one point, Cipollone even had to ask him, Privilege, and 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 then, the, and then the lawyer who's representing him said, "Yeah, privilege." He said, "I'm following my direction, my lawyer's direction on privilege on that." I think that was the one. That was the great question where somebody asked. I think it was Schiff. Schiff asked if there was anyone in the White House who was against trying to step forward and call a halt to the attack on the Capitol, and Cipollone answered, "Everyone on the White House staff wanted that to happen." And Schiff clarified and said, no, no, I didn't ask about the White House staff. I asked about anyone in the White House. So who's left? Who's left? Who's left? So at that point, he turns to his lawyer and says, privilege? And his lawyer says, yeah, that's privilege. So, you know, we don't answer that one. I can't answer that one. I don't get it. He's supposed to be a devout a Roman Catholic. He's got 10 kids. I can't imagine what he's going to tell his children and grandchildren someday when they read about all of this from a real history of what happened here, um, and uh, not, the, not the narratives that they're now trying to develop during these rehabilitation tours. The last guy I mentioned in my article has really flown under the radar, this yeah. guy, Stephen Engel. Yeah, 
we don't hear much about him, but you have really teed off on him, and I want you to do so right now for us. Well, he's the guy who was the assistant attorney general in what's called the Office of Legal Counsel. And what that office does, it's, in the, it's, it's part of the, the, the Department of Justice, and what it does is it issues legal opinions that others in the executive branch of government can then rely on in responding to things, you know, answering questions, you know, re- responding to correct congressional inquiries or asking, you know, legal questions. When legal questions arise, you go to the Office of Legal Counsel and they issue opinion, op- opinions that then guide the behavior of the executive branch of people. Well, if you, if you look at, at Stephen Engel's track record, and he's the only guy that we've been talking about today who has been with Trump from the very beginning of the administration, all four years. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was the guy who issued the opinion that said, you know, White House counsel Don McGahn did not have to testify in response to a congressional subpoena, even when they were trying to just follow up on the Mueller report, mm-hmm. even to simply discl- to confirm what he had already told Mueller. And and Engel issues an opinion says no. Not only not only McGahn, but nobody nobody there. They, they, you know, you don't need to do anything there. And and of course the the courts reject ultimately rejected that position. And two years later, he finally did it, testify privately before a congressional committee. But who cared by then? You know, by then we were out past our second impeachment and you know on our way to an insurrection. So that worked. He was the one who issued the legal opinion after the fact that basically said, yeah, it was okay for Trump and everybody in the executive branch to completely stonewall the congressional committee that was investigating uh, Ukraine. Which, which on the face of it is absurd. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Of course it's absurd. It would deprive, it would deprive Congress of every oversight responsibility that it has under the Constitution. Trump felt like he could get away with this, all this stuff, for a reason. If you've got Barr and Cipollone and Engel and everybody else, and that's why I think if you go back to that session, that Department of Justice session, on, I think it was January 3rd, where, where Cipollone's in the room and, and Engel's in the room, and Jeffrey Clark is presenting his, his, his make me attorney general speech, fire Rosen, make me attorney general, and, and they're all telling it. Rosen and, and Engel are, are, all tell, are all telling him, this is nuts. Cipollone's telling him this is a murder-suicide pact, but I do I believe if you if you watch carefully if you if you sort of take a parse the transcript I think what ultimately turned the tide there wasn't the fact that the lawyers were saying look the law and the facts are against you on all of this this is a crazy plan I don't think that's what tipped it I think what tipped it was when Engel who had been with them all four years according to the testimony in front of the January 6th committee that we all saw. Trump turned to Engel and said, after Rosen and Eric Hersman said they would resign, Trump turned to Engel and said, well, you wouldn't resign, would you, Steve? And, and according to the testimony, Engel said, Mr. President, I've been with you for the entire four years through two attorney generals. You know, you rent down the whole litany, but I can't be part of this. It would be a public relations disaster. No one would focus on anything other than the fact that you uh, had gone through yet another attorney general. And I think ultimately it was the fear of the public relations hit. It was the fear of how this would look. Not the law, not the facts, but it was Engel's admonition to him that Jeffrey Clark would be presiding over a graveyard because there'd be mass resignations in the Department of Justice. Wow. And that was, those were the optics. Those were the optics that I think ultimately turned Trump around in that meeting. I've seen a this in the House committee. Have they gone over this? 
Yeah, it came out. It came out. Okay. You know, it was part of it was part of Engel's testimony, and it was okay. part of uh, right. Eric Hirschman's testimony. But you know, the, the one of the good and bad things about the House hearings, if you watch them, and I watched all of them, is there was a lot in there. It was it was very efficient. It was very compressed, succinct, and I think pretty and well organized. Historians are going to have a field day parsing some of this and reconstructing it, and, and all these guys are going to write books, and they'll have their own spin on all of it. But you can even you can even discern things knowing Trump and Trump's behavior and what what he really responds to and what he does. He doesn't respond to facts or law, but he responds <laughs> to something that might reflect might reflect badly on him. Will this reflect badly on me? Yeah. Well, there's a lot of balls in the air in this this com- these committee hearings. But for further reference, I want to send people to your your essay, "The Lawyers Who Enabled Trump's Assault on Democracy," which is at CommonDreams.org. Yep, they can also get it at my website, which is which is titled "The Belly of the Beast." So you can also get there by by because it has the title of my most recent book, which was TheLawyerBubble.com. And the insurrection timeline, which you mentioned earlier, you can get at BillMoyers.com. Let's talk about this. It's very extensive. You have not updated it, I guess, since March 7th, 2021. I hope you'll do so uh, come this fall as, as more comes out of the, uh, uh, of the committee hearings. But man, again, there's a lot going on. Sometimes you miss things. You sort of doesn't really register fully. And as I read this, I'm like, holy, again and again, I'm like, holy mackerel. I, I somehow was not fully grasping a lot of this stuff. And you pay close attention to this stuff. So just think about the ordinary citizen whatever news they watch or don't watch um, and, and is, uh, is trying, to, trying to parse all this stuff out. That's what's been, I think, so helpful about the January 6th hearings, actually. One of the things that jumps out at me is that the degree to which the cavalry charge was held back, first in D.C. and also in the neighboring states, I was sort of stunned to recall that, like, the, 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 guard, the guard from Maryland gets there at, like, 10 o'clock the next day in Virginia at noon the next day. It took till the next day to get the other state's guards in. And yet, there is no reason they shouldn't have had them ready to rock and roll. And, and in fact, there was strong urging from people to do so. And the Defense Department, perhaps led by the new Chris Miller expected to do Trump's bidding, did not seem to push any of that. Neither did the people under him. That's right. Yeah. In fact, the, I think the opposite was actually true. The, the most poignant line... I thought during the most recent hearings, the last prime time hearing, was it's not that Trump failed to act. He chose not to act. And he chose not to act because what was unfolding in real time on his ultimate reality, worst ever reality TV show that he was watching in the dining room off the Oval Office, which was the attack on the Capitol, it was unfolding exactly as he wanted it to unfold, in my, in my view. I, I think that everything, everything that you see leading up to that and everything that happened for the three hours and seven minutes when people were telling him, you know, do something, try to do something. And everything that they tried to get him to say the next day, you know, tell these people that they'll be held to the, to the full, fullest account, fullest, to the full extent of the law. You know, condemn the rioters, you know, tell them you can't do this. And he refused to do it. They took stuff. There's a story that just came out uh, just before we, we started this conversation about how he... He took out lines that would have done exactly that in the prepared speech. Didn't want to do it. Didn't even want to say the election is over. This all happened for a reason. To my mind, the congressional hearings is focusing on why he didn't stop it. But they they do get into the fact that this whole party was organized by Trump. I mean, it's like they would say, why didn't you stop the party? Oh, it's my party. 
That's right. That's right. I found this very interesting in your timeline that when they were given permission from the uh, the Park Service to hold this uh, Women for America, we're supposed to be sponsoring this pro-Trump group. Well, first of all, they moved it from January 23rd after the inauguration till January 5th. The Federal Election Commission uh, took a look at, at Trump direct payments to the rally organizers. So we have this rally from which the riots was spawned, and all the people that are putting this thing together are on the Trump payroll, as you document. Yep. You know, I think eventually all that all that will become part of what the January 6th uh, committee, uh, whether they do it in a hearing or otherwise, I don't know, uh, or in their final report. But it's all there. I mean, it, and, and I think part of the ch- challenge for the most recent, the, the first round of hearings, was to try to avoid getting too deeply into the weeds so that you could at least keep people in, engaged on the broad strokes of the, of the problem. But you're exactly right. I mean, this is well organized, and, and it's... Uh, it's well organized from the beginning. It's well organized from even before election day in terms of the big lie, you know, with Bannon saying, you know, he's just going to announce he's going to, here's what's going to happen. He's going to announce he's going to win. Doesn't matter whether he's actually ahead or not. He's going to announce that he won. Uh, and then that'll start it. As you point out in your narrative, Roger Stone was talking about uh, stop the steal. That was a phrase they were using in the 2016 primaries and again in the general election in 2016. That's right. And you can't have any doubt in your mind at all that if Trump had been ahead, actually winning, um, and I, my own personal view is that but for the pandemic, he probably would have won re-election maybe without much difficulty. I mean, I just think it was it would have been very difficult to stop him, but I think that the, pan, the pandemic may have been the thing that did him in because uh, he, he really did handle it so poorly. But, you know, if he'd been winning, you wouldn't be hearing about any of this stuff. You wouldn't be seeing voter suppression laws all over the red states. No. Um, you wouldn't have heard. You would, you, none of it. None of this would have happened. It's all, it's all nonsense. It's all nonsense. And, and, um, and he knows it. And he knows it, which is why he's facing real criminal jeopardy on a number of different fronts. Your timeline mentions, uh, and this was augmented by something that appeared in the hearings when General Milley spoke up about it, was that... It took Mike Pence to really get the guard and to get the support in. And and also, apparently, an aide from Mitch McConnell is the one that put a call through through the Maryland authorities so the Maryland government say, yes, I'll send people. But the White House was trying to pretend that, no, no, we're still in charge of all of this. We're doing all of this. And in fact, Trump lied a couple of days later and said, no, no, I, I immediately deployed the National Guard. Yeah. Well, here's here's the thing. You know, people say, well... You know, the, the, the system was tested, but it held. Actually, it didn't. No. Because Pence, Pence is not in the chain of command. It helped because Pence broke the chain of command. And Milley's not really in the chain of command either in terms of directing troops or directing the Department of Defense. The orders to the military have to come from the president through the direct Department of Defense and then to the military. So it didn't, it didn't help. The system actually broke. And it broke in a way that uh, resulted in in saving the system. But Mike Pence has, had no business being anywhere near right. those decisions. Acting extra constitutionally is appears to be what saved the Constitution. That's right. You got it. You got it. Wow. Exactly right. Yep. It's mind-boggling, isn't it? Yep. And yet here's Mike. Now here's Pence out on the the campaign tour 
saying he doesn't want to look backwards. You know, he had a president put a bullseye, <laughs> not literally, but, you know, as a practical matter, he had tweeted a bullseye on the guy's head uh, while he's while he's in hiding someplace in the bowels of the Capitol. And, and, but he doesn't want to look backwards. He doesn't want to look backwards. You know, I, well, another little mind-boggling moment here from your, your timeline, which which had me floored here just a few minutes before we convened here, was the fact that uh, Rand Paul, as they're going to impeach him for this insurrection, Rand Paul says, you know what, this thing is really unconstitutional. And he puts What's forward the up? resolution that this whole thing is unconstitutional. And 45 Republicans, including Mitch McConnell, agree with him. It's only Romney, Murkowski, Collins, Sass, and Toomey who said, no, 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 this can go forward. Right, right. Well, that was their attempt to get the thing all thrown out on, you know, this threshold question of whether you can, you know, try and convict uh, under impeach articles of impeachment, uh, you know, somebody who's no longer in office. But I think it's clear you can, based on, based on case law. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. I thought that was a test balloon to see how many senators they had to to convict. And it turned out that based on that vote, they had uh, plenty of room to make sure yeah. that Trump wasn't going to be convicted. It's a cult. You know, the other day, this, it occurred to me, you know, Trump likes to quote sometimes, and he did this in November 2020, the story of the rattlesnake and the old woman. I don't know if you know the story or not. There's an old oh. Cherokee legend about it. It's like, But the most recent iteration are, are lyrics by Oscar Brown and uh, sung by uh, Al Wilson. You'll love this because uh, this this is what I think of when I think of guys like Pence and Barr, who says he'd probably vote for Trump again, and you know all these people who say, yeah, he's terrible, he's terrible, he's terrible, but I'd vote for him again, and or they say, yeah, he's terrible, he's terrible, terrible, but geez, I never thought he'd do this. Uh, on her way to work one morning down the path all alongside the lake, a tender-hearted woman saw a poor half-frozen snake. His pretty colored skin had been all frosted with dew. Oh, well, she cried, I'll take you in and I'll take care of you. Take me in, oh, tender woman, take me in for heaven's sakes. Take me in, oh, tender woman, sighed the snake, now skip to the end. What happens is, of course, she saves the snake, and uh, instead of saying thanks, the snake gives her a vicious bite. I saved you, cried the woman, and you bit me even. Why? You know your bite is poisonous, and now I'm going to die. Oh, shut up, you silly woman, said the reptile with a grin. You knew damn well I was a snake before you took me in. Yeah, there you go. I wanted to note, as we're, we're running out of time here, unfortunately, but um, there's, there's so much out there. There's a lot of people out there pointing out the, the, the folly of all of this. Even The Economist, which is a business-oriented, very, very conservative publication, jumped on board. I, I wanted to quote a bit from that. Um, hold on, give me a second here. Well, in the Murdoch, the Murdoch papers turned against them too. The Wall Street Journal had a editorial board, you know, unfit to serve, and and the New York Post. So it's shaking. Well, I'm, I'm I'm citing the Lexington column from the Economist, uh, noting that Democratic leaders have been saying for years that Mr. Trump and his cult-like following threatens the republic, and they're right. They have not acted accordingly. Through a mix of magical political thinking, internal bickering, and mismanagement, they have sharpened and handed back to him two of his most three potent causes, crime and illegal immigration. And it goes on to note that even memories of how Trump whipped up the attack on, on the Capitol might have faded or have been challenged or revised were it not for the excellent word of the January 6th committee. 
The committee's nine members have not only kept the political class and much of the rest of the nation from looking away that day, they've obliterated claims that the mob acted spontaneously and that Mr. Trump had no idea it might use violence to stop the certification of Biden's victory. Very concise. Yep. Yep, I think that's right, and I, and I and they're going to have more hearings in September, and I hope they keep them going right up until Election Day in November of uh, 2022. You know, before we go, I do want to cite one more thing from um, from your timeline. Uh, this acting Secretary of Defense, Christopher Miller, when, when he was appointed to his post in the wake of the election, I, I just felt that, like a lot of people felt, no good's going to come of this. And seeing as how the Department of Defense acted so slowly uh, in the January 6th insurrection, I think that those two are connected. That's my opinion. Uh, I think you could be right, uh, and who knows? The, but, you know, he, he, he wasn't the only significant personnel change in the Defense Department. Uh, Trump put two of his other, you know, staunch allies in key positions, and then they issued an executive order that moved, moved one of them up the line of succession So within the Defense Department. So, you know, it sure looks like somebody's planning something. Because, as you say, the, the red flag here is, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. The, the election is over, of course. Now we know Trump thinks the election is never over. But he's lost, right? He's lost. And this is, you know, reconstituting, you know, significant portions of the, at the, of the leadership of the Defense Department is not something that you expect a president who is on his way out of office to do. I mean, just, it's hard to imagine, it's hard to think of a reason, uh, a, a non-nefarious reason why why he would do that. You mentioned also Michael Ellis was the guy they wanted to make the top lawyer at the NSA. And the NSA director, Paul Nakasone, thought didn't think that was a good idea. And no sooner was Biden officially president, where they basically called off that appointment and said, no, we got to look into how that even happened. And to me, in my mind, I look at the fact that I was so shocked last time we spoke that I had not seen the hearings when they talked about Trump supposedly choking or trying, or trying to grab the wheel of the limousine to go up to Capitol Hill. Um, obviously, people would like to see what the Secret Service had to say about, about uh, that incident. And doggone it, it looks like all those, all those records are missing. And I thought to myself, who better to, to recreate those records than people at the NSA? Because they seem to have everything copied. If not the NSA, you know, the Secret Service is the supposedly the foremost cyber security agency in the world. This is what they do. This is their expertise. And all of a sudden, they do what's supposed to be a migration to a different device, and boof, everything's lost? Wow. I don't think so. No. And, and the Secret Service at first pushed back and said, oh, Cassidy Hutchinson, uh, we, know, uh, we're, we don't agree that that's what happened. And they're like, okay, come talk to us under oath about it. And they've gone silent. One of them has his own, maybe two of them, Engel and uh, the other fellow who was Secret Service, and then they made him Deputy White House something or other. They have their own lawyers now. Curiouser and curiouser, as Alice would say. Yes, indeed. Well, we need to have you come back as, as things are updated in, in September. In the meantime, people need to, need to go to your, to your various website and take a look at your insurrection timeline. And, and Russiagate work, as well as your COVID timeline, they're all just excellent summaries. That uh, again, you talked about future historians. I think they'll be using some of your work uh, down the road. Well, thanks. You're you're very kind. You're very kind. I try to do, as you, as you probably have noticed, I, I've tried to be really scrupulous in simply presenting facts and then links that are annotated, so people can go right to the original sources for everything that I do. 
You don't need to believe me. Just click on something that you that you credit. Well, between now and such time, we hope we can also bring you back because you have written a book on the f- remarkable case of Jimmy Hoffa, and I'm keen to talk to you about it, but i got to read the book first. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right, Stephen J. Harper, again, a pleasure speaking with you, and I, I hope you will continue to do the good work that you're doing and come back and talk to us about it. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it, Doug. So it was a great pleasure speaking with someone as eloquent and succinct as Stephen J. Harper. We look forward to having him back on in the future. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett, and you have been listening to Radio Parallax. In the weeks to come, we look forward to speaking to both James DiEugenio in a look back at Watergate and Michael Trachtman. Mr. Trachtman is an author, an attorney at law, an adjunct professor at Villanova University School of Law, His book, The Supreme's Greatest Hits, The 44 Supreme Court Cases That Most Directly Affect Your Life, is a terrific work, and we look forward to speaking with him about it and the recent overturning of Roe v. Wade. You're not going to want to miss that.